Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golade, the bike editor at Blister. You can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so we have, as always, been hard at work testing a whole bunch of bikes, suspension, brakes, and other gear. And so I am once again joined by Dylan Wood to chat about a whole bunch of it, including the Rosingle Mandate, the Pivot Shadowcat, the Intense Tracer 279, a whole bunch of suspension, including a variety of air and coil rear shocks and a couple versions of the Manitou Dorado, and a whole bunch more stuff. And along the way, we also tease a very big roundup that we are working on that's going to be of interest to a lot of folks. So this covers a ton of ground, and there's a lot of stuff in here about a whole lot of upcoming reviews that we're working on. And before we get into that, though, I do want to take just a quick minute to encourage you to check out our Blister membership and consider sending us an email to get a personalized recommendation before your next bike purchase or gear upgrade. And I've said this a few times now, but it really seems like a lot of the supply chain related headaches in the bike world are, if not gone, at least abating a bit because a lot of folks have been able to buy bikes of late and we are setting people up with bikes from a lot of different companies and they're actually in stock and readily available in a lot of places. So send us an email through the form in the Blister Members Clubhouse and I will get you set up with the right bike for you. And with that, let's get right to my conversation with Dylan Wood. Well, Dylan, great to sit down and chat about some bikes as always and Nice to see you in your standard podcast closet. So sort of business as usual around here, I guess. And we've got a whole lot of bikes and some other bike related stuff to talk about here. So probably should just get right into it. Yeah, both been real busy and have a lot to cover. So again, this will probably be one of the regular blister podcast failed attempts at a lightning round where we're like, we we need to get through these pretty fast and then don't. But uh, we'll see how we do. So want to kick it off with some of the kind of shorter travel stuff you've been spending time on of late? Yeah, let's do it. Um, before we start, I just want to say for everyone listening, David has a great mustache going at the moment. And I've, I've never seen quite a mustache on David before. So it's just real exciting to get on this call and see a, see a nice mustache looking right back at me. And I think everyone who's you know, listening and not on a Google meet with David's just missing out right now. So just wanted to put that out in the world before we start chatting. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, one of the short travel, shorter travel bikes I've been spending time on lately is the Rosignol Mandate. Um, Luke got a couple rides on it and the sizing and the geometry of the bike just kind of wasn't working out for him. Um, he's a little shorter than I, he's 5'8 and I'm 5'10 and we're on a large. And so he handed it over to me and I've been spending time on it for a little over a month now. It's been a pretty interesting bike. It's got 140 mils of travel front and back and geometry that is a little bit more conservative to moderate, I'd say, for a trail bike these days. And because of that, it doesn't really feel comparable to something like, let's say, a Santa Cruz High Tower or you know Yeti SB130. Um, it kind of feels more like a Pivot Trail 429 or Niner Jet 9 with more travel, if that makes sense. Um, on on steeper stuff, this this bike doesn't feel as capable as, as like a normal trail bike would, you know, let's say something, you know, 150 front and back 29 inch wheels. Again, Santa Cruz high tower is a good example that comes to mind. It doesn't feel as confidence inspiring on those trails. And I kind of feel like the frame and the geometry is to blame for that. But what I really found this bike to excel in is kind of flatter trails where you're not really getting up to speed too much or, you know, you're just not riding stuff super steep, but trails like that, that are pretty technical, have a lot of, you know, rocks, roots, bumps, just pretty rough trails where you do want that, you know, 140 millimeters of suspension, you know, it has a 66 degree head tube angle, which is a bit quicker steering can be a little bit more intuitive, 
and predictable, especially at like slower speeds and flatter corners and stuff where you're doing a lot of, you know, steering with the, with the handlebars and, you know, you tip the bike over and the front wheel kind of goes with it, um, more easily than let's say a bike like the mega tower that has a 63 and a half degree head tube angle. So I think it, you know, I think it works really well on those, yeah, flatter tech where, you know, you're pedaling a good bit, you're, you need a little bit more suspension to smooth out the trail. And I think it would also work well for like beginners and intermediates who are kind of just wanting to get on something pretty intuitive, predictable, and kind of just drama free off the start. Um, Back to where I was struggling with this bike a little bit. I'm having a little bit of trouble with front wheel traction under braking, which is not really something I've experienced too much. And yeah, I've been playing around with the fork settings and, and like, you know, my fore aft weight balance on the bike and whatnot. And nothing is really making this bike feel super confidence inspiring on like steep stuff where you're on the brakes a good bit or kind of looser corners, big fast burns and stuff, just having a lot of weird steering and like front wheel washing out on me, which, you know, is, you know, if you're, if your back wheel kind of breaks loose, you're like, Oh, that was kind of sick. But your front wheel loose. I don't, that's not really a, that's not a great feeling on the bike. Um, and I kind of feel like the main culprit is the frame. I, I just think it comes down to the the frame on this bike. The, the top tube is, is pretty skinny it's no more than like a inch and a quarter wide or like three and a three and a half centimeters wide, you know, in diameter, which I, I kind of feel like that's, that's to blame. And I've talked to some other people who've been on this bike and they've kind of experienced the same things. So you're thinking that the frame's just kind of flexing and deflecting in weird ways under braking. And so you're, you're getting some strange behavior as a result of that. I think so. I, I like, I think that that that's what's to blame. It just kind of feels like the wheelbase is kind of just oscillating back and forth when you're braking, and you know it, it does have a pike on it, which you know maybe if we were able to swap a lyric up front or like a thirty six up front, maybe that would solve the problem. But that also might further accentuate the the frame flexing. Like if you looked at this top tube, I think you would understand. Um, but it, it's, it's been a little tricky on like, you know, steeper stuff, bike park kind of stuff. Um, but again, like at Herman's rocks, I feel like it, it does really well. Cause those are like flatter ish XC trails that have a ton of rocks on them. And when you're not getting up to speed a bunch, not breaking a whole ton, that sort of quicker handling and steering is, is really nice. And, uh, suspension wise, I'd say this bike is on the more efficient end of the spectrum, uh, it's pretty it has a pretty sporty feeling to it like you get from like let's say pivot trail 429 or pivot switchblade feels comparable to those bikes in that aspect um, not as plush and forgiving as something like the high tower again but yeah the more you ride steep stuff the more you're riding really fast you're an advanced or expert mountain biker uh, i kind of feel like this bike comes a little bit comes up a little bit short which is kind of a shame with how good the value is on this bike, like $4,200 for a really look good looking build kit on the mandate XT that we have. Yeah. I mean, the build kit's a sweet value for money and we were kind of excited about that aspect of it. And on paper, it looked like an interesting, like you said, kind of a little bit mellower, easygoing take on a trail bike, but kind of too bad that it hasn't been clicking for you, I guess. Sort of to keep moving along then what's up next. Yeah, another bike we have in this 140-ish realm is the Pivot Shadow Cat. Uh, this one's got 160 up front, 140 mils in the back, uh, 27.5 wheels on every size, and also a little bit more moderate geometry on this bike than we're seeing that comes out on a lot of trail bikes these days. So it is a little bit unique in that sense of it's got a dedicated 27.5 bike, trail bike, not super crazy geometry like pivot put on the firebird right like it's it's a contrast to that but one of the first things that um stands out about this bike is just how light it is our size medium 
in the Pro XT XTR build was weighing in at 28.75 pounds without pedals set up tubeless, which is pretty impressive for a bike with, you know, 150 ish mils of travel. And when you get it on the trail, that is one of the most evident things about it. It's just super easy to get off the ground. Um, like kind of going corner to corner, it, it kind of feels dynamic in the sense that it kind of wants to be lifted off the ground and like transferred into the next corner in a, a super playful way. Um, you know, something that encourages you to weight and unweight a lot, maybe, you know, gap over those roots instead of charging through them. Um, those nimble 27.5 wheels feel a little bit easier to lay over in corners, um, a little bit tighter or a little bit easier to get around those tighter switchbacks and whatnot, especially in the size medium. Um, and I was a bit worried about the medium at first because I'm usually someone who rides a size large and every pivot I've ridden has been a large also. But I'm really digging the medium Shadow Cat. Um, we did get the medium so that we could get more reviewers on it, like Kara and Luke. But I don't. I'm not sure I would even want to be reviewing a large. Um, to be fair, Pivot says a medium would work up to someone six feet tall, and I'm five ten, and I'm super happy on it. I feel like if you have a bike that's already that playful and nimble, I'm not sure it would make sense to size up on that. I don't know if you're really gaining that much. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been good. And I guess, yeah, some of the, we're pretty early on the testing of this bike. Currently Kara has it and I've been checking in with her. She says she's really enjoy, enjoying it as well. Um, I think one of the bigger questions is like, you know, how capable is this bike? Is it sacrificing some things because of how playful and nimble and light it is? Um, and I'm also a bit curious about the Fox DPS rear shock that they expect on that bike considering that I've haven't been that stoked with the DPX2 piggyback on even like bikes like that. I was kind of a little bit weirded out by seeing a DPS, you know, straight shaft, no piggyback rear shock on that bike. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if that will be able to, you know, keep up with, you know, longer rides, big descents, a lot of abuse. Um, and I, I kind of guess that maybe Pivot is, you know, saying that they're okay with making a sacrifice there, saving a little bit of weight. You know, that's probably how you get a bike in that realm to be under 29 pounds, right? But it sort of feels like a, a Float X or even a Super Deluxe would be more appropriate on that bike. So, yeah, we'll see if the if the DPS is a problem or, you know, maybe maybe it isn't. Maybe it just disappears under you while you're riding it, which which would be cool. Um, but yeah, excited to get more time on the shadow cat. We might get even four reviewers on this bike. So, uh, it'll be a whole family affair and yeah, excited to see everyone's opinion on it. Yeah. That one seems really cool. And just, I like that note you had about the sizing and how going a little bit smaller than you might otherwise feels appropriate on a bike that is trying to be more nimble and playful and light and easy to throw around rather than something that's a big stable charger of a bike. And I've been having a similar version of that conversation in a couple of blister member conversations recently with folks who are looking to add another bike to their quiver and kind of trying to figure out how to think about sizing on a bike that's going to be doing something pretty different than what they've been riding currently. You know, if you're like it's one thing if you're doing a more apples to apples comparison in terms of bike category to think about sizing that way. But I'm totally with you that on bikes that are generally trying to be quicker handling, more maneuverable, I am very often more inclined to size down on those and go with something a little more compact and sort of lean into that character of them. Whereas on big, long travel chargey stuff, I am more inclined to go big and just accept that. It's never going to be a super quick handling nimble thing. Might as well just make it stable and really charge. So that 100% checks out. And um, glad to hear you're getting along with that one. It looks like a really fun bike on paper and be curious to see how the rest of the gang gets on with it. Yeah, yeah, we've got a flash review up on the site for those who want to get uh, some more initial impressions on that bike. And we'll probably be updating that flash review as, as Kara wraps up her time on it and hand it off to 
Luke, Eric, Jonathan, who knows? We might even send it to David. No, we won't. But <laughs> sorry, David, you're not getting the Shadow Cat. But yeah, expect more on that bike pretty soon. That's all right. Sweet. So keep it rolling. Let's move up the travel range a little bit. You've been spending some time on the Intense Tracer. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Intense Tracer. So that is a 170 millimeter travel front and rear enduro bike. And it's a bit unique in the sense that it's a mullet and only a mullet, right? We see a lot of these enduro bikes coming out today that have the ability to be swapped between a mullet or, you know, mixed wheel 29 in the front, 27.5 in the rear setup, or you can run it full 29 front and back. But the Tracer is mixed wheel setup, all in, dedicated, which is, yeah, a bit unique in today's market. Um, you know, when you, when you start getting time on a bike and you're kind of, you know, formulating, trying to figure out what, like, the story is, I know Jonathan hates that word, but you know, the, the main points of the bike, right? Like what's, what's going on here? What, why, how does this bike stand out? A lot of the times it's pretty evident up at first you can, there's kind of something going on with the bike that is kind of, you know, separating it from other bikes you've been on. And then sometimes you get on a bike and it's just really normal feeling and really just kind of feels really cohesive and there's just, you know, it just feels like a bike. It feels really good. Um, the Tracer has kind of been a mix of the two. It feels like a really normal, you know, capable enduro bike, apart from the fact that it's a mullet, right? That it has that t- smaller 27.5 rear wheel. It feel, It's a really capable bike, something that keeps its speed really well over rougher terrain. Um, but it also has that smaller rear wheel that I think helps it feel a little bit better kind of entering and exiting corners in the same way I felt on other um, mixed wheel bikes. And it also, I feel like it biases your weight a little bit further back than on most enduro bikes. Um, it's felt pretty, really good on, on really steep stuff. Um, and with, with a recommended fork pressures, I've been having a little bit of trouble maximizing the fork usage on, on flatter trails, just cause I feel like you're spending most of your time in the back two thirds of the bike. Um, but I got it on some, some steep stuff and it felt much better. So I feel like it either needs to have a little bit softer fork than kind of what the recommended settings are, or you know, if you're riding steep stuff all the time, that just kind of feels like what that bike feels most at home. And so far, um, and it also only comes with a coil and yeah, the suspension, it kind of doesn't feel like too much like a coil. Um, and we'll get into that later in the sense that, yeah, it feels like really designed around a coil in the sense that, um, you know, you might slap a coil on a bike that comes with an air and it changes the bike a lot, makes it feel a lot, you know, firmer and and whatnot but the the tracer with the with the coil just kind of feels more like other enduro bikes with with air if that makes sense but so when you're talking about running the fork well either softer if you're not really getting the bike into super steep stuff or then finally kind of using more traveling what fork is on that tracer yeah so it's the fox 38 with the, it's a performance that we have on that bike. Um, so it's just the, the fit damper yeah, okay. grip damper, sorry. Um, on that one. And yeah, the, the Fox is recommended or, you know, like the sticker on the fork says for my way, it should be running 90 PSI, which is definitely firmer than what I usually run. So I just kind of tried that off the bat and it was yeah feeling pretty firm, pretty stiff on like trails that are, pretty flat, but, but pretty rough, like Avery at Mount Crested Buttes bike park. If those of you who are aware, it's just pretty fast, but has a couple pretty rough, rooty rock garden sections. And then I took it on something like Captain Jack's at Mount Crested Butte, which is like really steep. Um, and yeah, I was like maximizing the fork travel on that one and not in a bad way. Like I wasn't bombing out, but like, I was like the fork felt really good on, on that trail. So I was, I'm kind of, 
inclined to like take more air out of it on on flatter stuff and see if it feels better i know eric who handed it off to me he was running like i think less than 70 psi in the fork and and liking it which is kind of surprising um but yeah definitely you know only i think two rides into that bike so a lot of a lot of tweaking to be to be had for sure yeah be curious to see how you get on with that eric's flash review of the tracers up on the site already people can check that out and we'll have a full review in a bit once you've got some more time on it and have you and eric both chime in and so keep it moving along here you talked a little bit on the kind of putting a coil shock on certain bikes that come spec with an air and uh which brings us to the new second gen mega tower which we both spent a bunch of time on our full review of that bikes up on the site already but one of the things we were talking about a little bit in that review were the various build options because Santa Cruz offers that bike with both air and coil shocked rear builds. And uh, we tested it with a RockShox Super Deluxe Air, the prior generation version of that shock, not the brand new 2023 stuff. But, well, let you take it from here, I guess. You've been doing some more experimenting since then. So what have you been up to? Yeah, so we bought that v2 mega tower to have to stick around for kind of a you know long term parts testing platform and just kind of tinker with a little bit more and just because i i really like that bike too and it kind of seemed like a good one to have around um so yeah with the with the air it felt you know it definitely felt a bit more plush and forgiving than its predecessor the v1 mega tower um it definitely felt like a bike that you know you get up to speed and it was it was capable for like an expert rider someone who is racing enduro riding at the bike park but it also didn't feel like you needed to be an expert to ride it and i think the coil kind of changes the character of the mega tower a little bit so yeah i i I got a fox dhx2 factory coil um and I also, so the Mega Tower V2 comes with a 230 by 62.5 shock. So that's 62 and a half millimeters of stroke. But Santa Cruz says that if you get a 230 by 65 millimeter stroke shock, then you could bump it up to 170 versus 165 in the back. So I did do that. I got a, a 65 millimeter stroke shock to get a little bit more travel um, just to, because I was also curious how that would feel. So, you know, kill two birds with one stone kind of situation. And I got the DHX2 with a 450-pound spring. Um, I was between 450 and 500 pounds, um, but Santa Cruz recommends 450 for someone who weighs 160 pounds like I do. And given that I got along so well with their recommended settings for the Super Deluxe, I thought that I have no reason to bump up to 500. So, uh, yeah. So I got that coil on the bike and the last two days I got on, um, two pretty good rides with it. And yeah, like I said, changes the character of that bike a little bit. It definitely feels firmer off the top and into the mid stroke, um, like going over like kind of medium sized hits, like smaller rocks and roots. I'd say it, definitely feels a little bit more harsh it feels like the bike isn't absorbing everything under you as much as it was with the air but that firmer mid-stroke support also provides a lot of traction in kind of off-camber rough situations where you're you know pushing into the bike a lot and kind of playing with weighting and unweighting the bike and you kind of don't want to be you know wallowing in that air shock as much and it also, I took it to the bike park and I don't feel like I ever want to ride it with the air shock at the bike park ever again, just because it feels, I think it feels a lot better just pushing into berms at high speeds, um, going like really fast into, into rock gardens and, and Rudy sections as well. I think it just feels more efficient, firmer and like faster and kind of feels more like a, like a game on bike, right? Like if I were riding you know riding really hard maybe like racing downhill on it 
like casual downhill, I feel like I'd want the coil. It feels a little bit more efficient, faster. Whereas I feel like if you kind of want it to be an enduro bike that you're just riding on trails a lot, I think the air makes more sense in that, in that case. Um, but yeah, liking the mega tire with the coil, definitely keeping the air around though. I feel like each has its place. Right. Um, and just kind of like what I'd recommend to people. Um, yeah, this is a, a know thyself moment for sure. I'd say the majority of riders will be better off with the air just because it's easier to tune. Um, you know, it's saves some weight, it's lighter. Um, it, it's a little bit more forgiving, right? Like I'm, I don't think of intermediate to low level advanced rider would be super happy with the coil in the way that I think most people would be fine with the air. But yeah, if you are that advanced expert rider who really wants to be riding fast, pushing super hard into, into corners and, and G outs and stuff, I think the coil makes a lot of sense on that bike. That's super interesting. And so I've only ridden that bike with the stock super deluxe air. And my take on it was that very much in line with what you just said, that actually the small bump sensitivity was extremely good. And it kind of felt a little bit like in certain sections, particularly going fast through something kind of rough and chattery, the bike wasn't holding itself up quite as well as I wanted to. I just wanted a little bit more support out of the rear. And part of that, I think, too, is that the Super Deluxe that came on that bike was the Select Plus with non-adjustable compression. And I probably wanted that compression set up just a little bit firmer than the stock one came set up. But I can totally see how the added mid-stroke support of the coil shock would make that kind of stuff feel better, but also potentially take away a little bit of the plushness that you felt out of that air shock just because it's it takes a little bit more to get deeper into the travel given that extra bit of support. And so based on my impressions of that bike with the air shock, that actually kind of checks out, even though it's maybe a little counterintuitive that the coil shock would feel firmer and more game on like that. But yeah, I, I buy it. That, that makes sense to me. So nice little update there. And if folks are so inclined, you can get a mega tower with a DHX two as one of the stock build options, depending on kit level you're opting for. So, um, options there. Good to know that, uh, there's kind of a clear delineation of how those things break down and who ought to be on which one and nice little update there. So to, uh, chat a little bit about my own particular version of air versus coil experimentation of late, I've been testing the new 2023 RockShox Super Deluxe in both the air and coil versions on my Nikolai G1. And um, talked about this a little bit before on a prior episode. I'd started spending time on the air version first and got the coil more recently. And the air, frankly, doesn't feel like the best fit for that bike through no particular fault of the shocks it's just that it's a for one thing it's a very progressive bike that doesn't really need the extra help from an air shock on that front um and then for another thing the bike has two different travel settings via a flip chip uh you can either run it at 162 or 175 rear and i've generally preferred the 175 mode just for kind of mostly how balance the bike feels just having the rear end riding a little bit deeper and having a little more travel there has felt better balanced to me on that bike and due to clearance issues the super deluxe air doesn't work in the longer travel mode you can only run it in the 162 so um which is kind of more the bike's fault than the shocks honestly the uh clearance around the rocker link in the low in the longer travel modes tight and so between those two things, the Air wasn't really a great fit for that bike, but got the coil version on it now, and I'm getting along with that super, super well. We've got a whole big update on kind of a first look on those shocks on the website. People check out, but there's a lot of new stuff going on with those. The new versions, at least in the ultimate form that I've been testing, have a bunch of new adjustability. It's an adjustable high speed compression on them now, whereas the old one was low speed only the 
Also, they have an option for a hydraulic bottom-out circuit, which is additionally ad externally adjustable on the coil version, but not the air. And so they're quite a bit more tunable now, uh, and I've been very, very impressed with the performance. The coil in particular on that bike feels very supportive. There's a big range of adjustment available in terms of damper settings. You can make it feel very plush and cushy if you're so inclined, but each click makes a pretty noticeable difference on the high speed, especially low speed compression as well. And one of the things that I think they've really nailed on that is that it's a shock where you can run quite firm compression damping without it starting to feel harsh and spiky in certain instances. Very often, if you're trying to really crank up the compression and make a bike feel supportive, you end up doing that. But also on certain really high speed hits, you just get kind of a yeah spikiness is probably the best word for it as the shock starts to break away. And that shock in particular does a really good job of not doing that, even if you have the compression firmed up quite a bit, um, which has been cool. So it's been pretty easy to set up. Haven't been able to make it do anything too weird, but you've got a big range of adjustment available. And that's been sweet. It's also interestingly like dead quiet. RockShox put a ton of effort into making there not be any damper slurping noises and stuff on rebound in both their new forks and shocks and have really nailed that one they are genuinely dead quiet which honestly i don't know that i care that much but it's kind of cool and if you're someone who has found those noises to be annoying they're there it's an option um all that said i have also been riding the air version of that shock on the new high tower new san Cruz high tower and i've been really liking it there too uh it's the air version feels like a much better fit for the high towers suspension kinematics than the g1s so which kind of makes sense it's a shorter travel more trail bike oriented thing and in fact the high tower doesn't have clearance for a coil shock so it's very much expressly designed for an air one and um kind of all the same stuff i said about the coil on the g1 pretty much applies there too it's working super well very adjustable um i've been less inclined to run super firm compression on that bike largely because it's a shorter travel, more kind of versatile all-rounder thing rather than a very long, very slack, long travel enduro bike that you're really trying to charge on. And so it's, you know, apples and oranges a little bit, but been very, very impressed with that shock on the high tower as well. So pretty excited about what RockShox got going on there. We'll have full reviews of those in a little bit once I got some more time on the coil iteration, but uh, that's coming soon. And... We also just ran our full review of the new Zeb, which they updated at the same time a couple months ago, and uh, won't go too deep on that. We've talked about it a bit on here before. We're going to have the full review up, but I've been very impressed with that fork as well, so people should check that out. Sweet. Yeah, pretty interesting stuff going on in the RockShox world this summer, and yeah, with a, with a coil, right, like tunability is kind of one of the biggest weaknesses of a coil, and it kind of sounds like they did a pretty good job of maybe alleviating that a little bit. I mean, the damper adjustments are really good. One of the bummers about the RockShox coils is that they don't offer 25 pound increment springs like some other manufacturers do. It's just fifties. And so, mm, uh, just 50. Okay. And they take a larger diameter coil. So your options for running a different brands spring on it to get around that are a little more limited. Oh, um, that was going to so be my next question. That part, there's a little bit of room for improvement on the tunability front, but the damper is excellent. And on the spring rate note, actually, I've been running a 350 pound spring on the G1, which is a little bit lighter than I have been running with the stock EXT Storia, but it doesn't feel like a super apples to apples comparison in terms of spring rates. Uh, my hunch on that is that just the damper on the rock shocks kind of has a little bit more of a built-in spring effect because you have sort of the IFP that you're pushing against, which is acting as a spring, even though it's sort of technically part of the damper. And so I've basically found that like you get a fairly similar feel out of running a slightly lighter spring rate in the rock shocks than in the EXT, which has worked out really well for me because I've 
mostly preferred a 375 pound spring on the ext which rock Shocks doesn't offer but the 350 has worked out to be a pretty good actual comparison on the two so um it's working out but it would be nice to see them add some 25 pound increment springs in the middle there just to give folks some more options because especially when you're at the lighter end of the range like 350 to 400 is a big jump percentage wise you know you're talking well let's say well over 10 percent change which is a lot if you think you know you're thinking about your air rear shock right if you're running let's just say 175 pounds in it to make a number up like five pounds is a noticeable difference and that's a much smaller jump than you're getting out of those coil increments so um would be cool to see some more options there but in the other senses i'm very very impressed with that shock yeah i know we have more to get into but one more thing i'm curious about that rock shocks coil the hydraulic bottom out i know you said that you didn't feel any like spikiness and and it's like the the damping at all I'm I'm sort of wondering how if if that hydraulic bottom out is super noticeable, and if so, like what kind of sensations it is. Like, does it feel like bottoming out in air or or what? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so it definitely makes a big difference just across the range of adjustment on it. Uh, it's very noticeable what it's doing. Like, it, the bike feels very different with across the the range of settings on the hydraulic bottom out circuit and the way i characterize it is that i mean what it's doing is it's just adding more compression damping in the last i forget exactly what the number is but last little bit of the travel and so it just makes the bike feel like as you crank it up firmer you get the bike feeling more supported more controlled deeper in the travel with the hydraulic bottom out backed off i could definitely notice some not super harsh, but like you could feel the bike bottoming out in a few instances, especially on kind of heavier landings and stuff like that. And firming it up, it just, you get more support deep in the travel when you're hitting it pretty hard. And because it's compression damping, it's also like it's both speed and position sensitive, right? So it's only applying in the end of the travel, but then also the harder you're hitting it and the faster the shock is moving in that end of travel position, the more damping you get out of it. And so it does a really nice job of just muting things deep in the travel. If you're getting in there and getting close to bottom out, the shock's still moving pretty fast. It's definitely the kind of thing where like you don't exactly feel the shock doing it as it's happening. It's more like you notice the absence of the bottom out events that were happening without it turned on, if that makes sense. Okay. That does make sense. Yeah. It's just kind of a way you can sort of dial in how much of that you really need versus backing it off. If you're just not using all your travel and kind of don't need that much support deep in it. So it does feel like the kind of thing where you're sort of more using it to just not notice harsh bottom outs and kind of figure out how much, hydraulic bottom out support you need to get there rather than it being super obvious when the hydraulic thing is doing its business but uh it works yeah and i, I just looked it up it was it's the last 20 percent of the stroke which is kind of a lot if you think about it that's pretty significant yeah it's a bit i mean it enough room for it to actually have time to do something and uh it's noticeable so that's been neat cool yeah well, I think we should move on. You've been spending some time on a somewhat iconic Canfield bike. Can you tell us more about that? That's right. So I've been spending some time on the new Canfield Jedi 29. So Jedi name's been around Canfield for a long time as their virtual high pivot downhill bike for quite a while now, uh, well before the recent re-emergence of high pivot bikes they've kind of been pioneering that for a good while now and the jedi took a little bit of a hiatus it's now back um and i've been very very impressed with the new iteration of it um the older models of the bike i've ridden a couple of the generations over the years and they've consistently been very good at just plowing through stuff in a straight line but some of the older ones 
had some kind of more noticeable handling quirks that came with that. In particular, uh, it's one in really well-supported bermed corners and stuff like that. You could feel like the rear end of the bike was getting way longer as you loaded the suspension up through a berm and the balance point on the bike shifted around a little bit and it was a little bit harder to just keep the two wheels gripping exactly how you wanted it to because you kind of needed to do this rearward weight shift as the back end got longer to sort of stay balanced on the bike. And along with that, they also could feel a little funky jumping because you'd load the bike up on a lip, try to pop off of it. And as the rear end rebounded, the front or the rear wheel rather would come back forward and it almost feel like it was sort of pulling you back and hampering that bit of pop you were trying to get out of it. And I think they've done a really good job of keeping a lot of the just straight line, smashy, just don't care what's in your path uh, ability of the older ones while mitigating a lot of that weirdness. And in part, they've made the axle path a bit less rearward than some of the prior generations, which has helped there, I think. Um, And it just feels like a really good refinement of what that bike did before. It's also got... The version I've been testing has an EXT Arma MX rear shock on it, which is super impressive, really good shock. And so the combination of just the well-sorted-out suspension kinematics, fairly rearward axle path, and a really good coil shock, uh, it is extremely good at just running through rough sections, breaking bumps, big rocky chunk sections, and just point it and go kind of thing it's definitely not the most lively kind of nimble easy to pick up and move around bike and so it does favor just staying planted and smashing through things a bit more than even some other downhill bikes do for sure but it feels better rounded and less fully committed to that riding style than some of the earlier ones did it's working really well I've been riding it in a large, which I think I'm six feet tall, and that is basically the size that Canfield recommends for me. And I think it feels really good as an all-rounder kind of bit of everything DH park bike. If I was just racing DH on it and was purely looking for a go-fast, super committed 100% charge bike, I would probably be tempted to size up to the XL just to have a little bit more stability and a little bit more room to move around on the bike. But for more all around bike park kind of use where trying to ride all day, not necessarily going absolutely flat out all the time and want something that's a little easier going, a little easier to throw around on jumps, that kind of stuff. The large feels pretty appropriate for that. And One of the other interesting things about that bike, suspension-wise, is that it's also coming with the new Manitou Dorado, which the version I've been on has the Dorado Expert from Canfield, but then I've also got the Dorado Pro in to review, so I've been doing a bit of A-Bing of both versions of that fork on the Jedi, which has been cool. And real quick, how does the Expert and Pro, which which one's better? Yeah, so getting into that. So the the pros, the top shelf iteration of it. Uh, basically, in short, the differences are that the Pro has a fancier air spring, which has a dual positive chamber design. So you've got essentially two air chambers stacked on top of each other that you can set pressure in independently. The idea being that it helps you sort of dial in the amount of mid-stroke support you want and you have a bit more fine tuning of kind of the ramp up behavior than you do with a more typical spacer arrangement. And so that is, I think maybe the most striking on trail performance difference between the two is just the, the pro does feel more supportive and easier to dial in more support without it compromising it elsewhere than the, than the expert, the, Dampers are a little bit different. Uh, Externally, they're kind of the same adjustments. They're both rebound and high and low speed compression. Um, The internal architecture is a little bit different. Frankly, thus far, my take is that those don't feel as wildly different, though, because it's an inverted fork, 
you can actually mix and match legs. So I'll be doing like uh, a more complete AB of all of that where you can like, there's no reason you can't put a one expert leg and one pro leg into the fork and just ride it like that if you want to more completely sort of back-to-back test those things. So I'll be doing some more of that and we'll have more to say once I've gotten there. Uh, And then finally, the pro also has carbon fiber upper legs, whereas the expert's aluminum. And so it saves a little bit of weight. And Manitou says that the carbon upper legs in the Pro are also very slightly stiffer, though I forget exactly what their claim numbers are, but it's a few percent. It's not anything big, and it doesn't feel super noticeable there either. Uh, But it looks really cool. It's a little bit lighter. And I think the earlier take is that basically the, the air spring is the most significant difference. Though it is worth noting that you can put that upgraded air spring from the pro into an expert if you want to go that route and kind of do a slightly more affordable way of going about it so it's been interesting getting on those two though because it's been a while since i've ridden an inverted fork uh in fact the last one was the prior generation dorado some years ago that fork was around for quite a while and inverted forks have sort of fallen out of favor a little bit i think largely just because the torsional stiffness of them tends to be a bit lacking compared to conventional right side up forks and the dorado definitely does feel noticeably less stiff torsionally than especially the 40 or to a lesser extent the boxer uh but i kind of haven't really felt like that was a problem necessarily so one of the things that manitou says about that is that their take is that it can help actually in terms of compliance and traction to have the front wheel able to deflect a little bit and follow the terrain rather than pinging off of everything. And I think there's something to that. You do also definitely lose a little bit of steering precision with that. And so it's a case where there are trade-offs for sure. But one of the things that's interesting is that I have often felt on conventional right set up especially single crown forks like i've been a very big fan of the fact that we had this crop of burlier long travel single crowns showing up the rock shock seb the fox 38 etc because especially as you kind of get into longer travel 29er forks the more sort of the prior generations of those long travel forks like the 36 and the lyric from before their bigger siblings got introduced you really you could notice a lot of four aft flex and kind of lack of precision in them. And the Dorado. And one of the other things that that actually brought in, actually let me back up a little bit is that when they're flexing around and binding up and stuff, you can notice a significant loss in suspension performance because they're just not sliding very well anymore because you've got the forks all twisted up and not able to slide as freely as it ought to. And so one of the things that I think the Dorado kind of does well, and it sort of makes sense that an inverted layout would help with this, is that even if the fork is twisting a little bit and you don't have as much torsional stiffness as you'd get from, say, a 40, which is super, super stiff, is that it doesn't have those kinds of issues where it starts to bind up and stop sliding, even if it is twisted a little bit. And I think a lot of that's because there's a ton of four aft stiffness in it. And so even if because so basically like the in each individual leg still stays pretty well aligned with itself, even if the front wheels twisted to one side or the other a little bit. And so it's a different feel, but it actually it does work pretty well. And I think, like I said, it's sort of just a trade off of a little bit of steering precision, but the actual suspension performance is really good. I've been a big fan of the Manitou Bezer Pro for a while now, and there's kind of a bit of a family resemblance in terms of the uh, damper performance. They're, all of their forks tend to be a little bit firmer in terms of compression settings and whatnot than a lot of, like especially the newer Fox Grip 2 stuff isn't uh, the most heavily damped in compression. And the Manitou stuff's kind of across the board a little bit firmer and more supportive. And especially the double chamber spring in the pro is super supportive there, but it all adds up to a pretty 
solid package that I'm really getting along with quite well. And uh, one of the other things that I'll be messing around with, in addition to all of that A being we already talked about, is that you can set them up with both 47 or 57 millimeters of offset. And so I've got a couple crown options, and I'll be doing some more A being there. So far, I've only ridden on the Jedi with the stock 57 offset, but have a setup to do a the 47, which is officially their offset for the 27.5 version of the fork. But because it's inverted and there's no arch, you it's actually the same fork, just with different crowns, and you just slide the lower crown up or down to get the axle of the crown sort of set. And it's there's no need to have separate lowers because there aren't lowers, you know? <laughs> so... Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like you have a, a lot of variables to flush out here and a lot of franken-forking to do. Yeah, that one's going to be busy for a little bit, but it's going to be fun to sort of see how it all stacks up. And um, so far, early impressions are real good. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a, a unique option out there. And you've been spending time on another unique product that is kind of related to suspension but also kind of not yeah so i've been also testing the o-chain which for people who aren't familiar it's basically a replacement spider for your crank set that allows the chain ring to rotate backwards a little bit on some elastomer springs the idea being to mitigate pedal kickback and so the sort of cliff notes version of that is that on most bikes, if the as the suspension compresses, the chain pulls backwards on the crank and rotates or wants to rotate the crank backwards. But of course, your feet are on the pedals, you're sort of resisting that motion with your body weight. And so that can hamper suspension performance a little bit. And so the thing that's tricky about pedal kickback, though, is that in order to actually experience it, you sort of have to have the suspension compressing fast enough that it catches up with the rotation of the rear wheel. So the faster the rear wheel is rotating forwards, the faster the suspension has to compress before it does that catching up and any pedal kickback actually happens. And because if the wheels rotate rolling forward, you have to engage the free hub before any force gets transmitted. And so what's been interesting with the O-Chain, which I have on my G16, which has a not crazy, but substantial amount of pedal kickback, is it's basically what you'd expect, which is that it's not very noticeable a lot of the time because it's probably not doing anything a lot of the time when, in a lot of instances, if particularly the faster the bike is rolling forward the less you would be inclined to experience pedal kickback anyway. But where it is most noticeable is in kind of faster, rougher sections while you're on the rear brake, which my th thinking on that is basically that you're kind of, if the bike is skipping over some holes and rough sections and you're braking, the rear tire is going to be braking traction with the ground sometimes when it lets up, the rear wheel will instantaneously lock up because if you're not on the ground, it doesn't take much brake for the rear wheel to stop. And then you hit the front edge of the next hole with the rear wheel not rolling momentarily until it catches enough traction to start rolling forward again. And it does really help smooth those particular instances out. And so it's kind of a, a case of like, it's not like it makes a night and day difference in terms of the suspension performance all the time, but it does make a notable improvement in certain specific instances. And on a longer travel, more gravity-oriented bike, I don't think there are that many major drawbacks either. It's a little bit of weight, something like 125 grams or thereabouts. It'll depend a little bit on what chainring you're replacing it with and so on. And it basically uses a normal 104-millimeter BCD 4-bolt chainring from back in the days before direct mount chain rings were the norm. And basically it makes it feel like your hub has worse engagement because there's uh, 
you have anytime you start pedaling, you basically have to squish through the little bit of travel in the O chain before you start transmitting any torque to the chain. But um, and that's adjustable. Basically, they have a, a number of different elastomer configurations that you can put into it to uh, adjust how much movement there is. So I've thus far only run it with the stock six degree setup. I'll do some more experimenting and try. There's a four, a nine and a 12 available. Um, mess around with it a little bit more. But other than the little bit of weight and slightly slower hub engagement, it hasn't had any drawbacks it, it's it's not super noticeable um even on a bike that i am actually climbing on a fair bit i'm also to be fair i'm mostly riding kind of fire road climbs and relatively untechnical mellow climbs where losing a little bit of hud engagement is almost irrelevant but if you're either in that scenario or especially on a downhill bike i mean it's really not going to be too big a deal for most people and granted it's going to make a bit less of a difference depending on what bike is mounted to as well. You've got various options for like some bikes have more of a kickback than others do. And so it's going to be varied in how much of an effect it has depending on what bike it's bolted onto. But thus far it's shaping up to be kind of a, you know, maybe a little bit of like a kind of incremental gains with not much of a downside either. So not night and day, but noticeable, sometimes and with very few drawbacks so that's been fun to play around with and kind of just get my head around pedal kickback a little bit better because um it's something that gets talked about a lot and i didn't necessarily have the clearest understanding of when and how it actually manifests itself but i think that framing of it being something that happens specifically when you're hitting something pretty abruptly and the rear wheel is not rotating quickly and like on the brakes over something rough and choppy where you're losing traction is kind of the most common easiest way to make all that happen and the o-chain does make a real difference in that particular instance yeah makes sense yeah it's definitely a interesting product that i've been curious about and yeah pedal kickback is something that a lot of people have probably heard about, but probably don't realize it's, it's happening or it probably doesn't really affect them that much. Right. Like, you know, you could probably see kettle pedal kickback if you were to just you know, drop your bike and you kind of see the cranks spin backwards for a sec, like that's pedal kickback or like going through a rock garden. And, you know, like, like you said, you're on the brakes and you kind of hear like the ding of your free hub engaging like that to me, that's kind of when I, I'm like, oh, yep, that's pedal, pedal kickback. And can it can be mistaken for like, you know, hitting your rim on a rock or something, you know, kind of, that kind of makes a similar sound sometimes. But yeah, it seems like a product that could solve a problem that a lot of people maybe didn't realize that was happening, or maybe it's exactly what someone has been after for, for a while. Yeah. And I think the prevalence of them on the World Cup DH circuit speaks to that. Like, and your note about, dropping the bike i think is a good one because you can very obviously see it when you when you just pick your bike up and drop it depending on the bike i guess but like most full suspension bikes have some non-negligible amount of pedal kickback but like the key thing to remember there is that in that test you're doing it with the wheel not rotating generally i mean you could maybe spin it up or but even once you as soon as you drop the bike the wheel's gonna hit the ground and stop spinning so it's you know, you're kind of taking that portion of it out of the equation where under most riding circumstances, the wheel is also spinning, which is going to mitigate it. And so sort of just something to keep in mind as you're thinking that stuff through. Yeah, that could, that could be a good good little experiment. You know, drop your bike, wheel not moving, spin up your rear, rear wheel, drop it, and see what the difference is. Yeah, I mean, the trick is you need to figure out a way to keep the rear wheel spinning forward as the tire hits the ground, which is pretty tough to do in just a straight drop. But yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe we're, um, we're overthinking this. <laughs> maybe a little bit. Anyway, yeah, we should probably move on. So last thing to wrap it up here. I've been spending a bunch of time on the Hope Tech 4 V4s, their new generation of their big Enduro DH brake. I already talked about the brakes a bunch with 
Hope's engineer, Sam, a little while back on here. We'll link to that in the show notes if you want to check that conversation out. But in short, I have been very, very impressed with the brakes. They are really just sort of nicely built and finished. And the same was true for the prior generation Tech 3s, but the downside on those was that they were just kind of a bit short on power, especially as we'd kind of gotten into more 29er bikes, which place more demands on brakes. Uh, and the Tech 4s are a really big bump up in power. And so they're, the V4s are now really up there with kind of the current crop of big proper downhill brakes these days. And I've been super impressed with them. Probably the biggest sort of specific selling point for them is like a use case for someone is that if you want a brake that is very, very powerful and delivers that power pretty linearly. So like for folks, probably Shimano would be the brand most people are familiar with where you have a very like sharp initial bite to the brake. As soon as you get on it, it hits really hard, really abruptly. And depending on your preferences, that may or may not be a good thing, but the hopes are pretty firmly at the other end of that spectrum where there is a huge amount of power available, but it builds a little more gradually and you don't have to, you don't have that very, very hard hit right from the front. Um, the maybe trade off, depending on your preferences there is that the bite point in terms of the lever feel on them is not the most firmly pronounced of stuff that's out in the market. Um, I'm not going to say they're spongy, or anything like that, but it is just a little bit more gradual in terms of how the brake engages, which, you know, depending on your preferences, may or may not be a good thing. The levers also, the lever blade, I mean, is notably on kind of the thicker, chunkier sides. It's very solid feeling. There's a pretty big surface area on it, um, which, again, is just going to be another personal preference sort of deal as to whether or not you're you're into that or not. I've been getting along with it really well, and they're, yeah, like I said, very, very powerful now, easy to control. Uh, I've had just very good luck with them in terms of consistency and haven't been able to overheat them badly. Their heat management's good. They're well sorted out and pretty nicely done. Um, the one little bit of an annoyance I've had with them is that they're not the easiest brakes to get a really good bleed on. Um, it took me a couple of tries to get every little air bubble out of them and get the bleed totally nailed. Once I got there, they'd been super solid and I haven't had any further issues, but um, the the bleed was a little bit tricky. Just I'd sort of get it feeling, I thought I had all the bubbles out and had it feeling good and then go for a ride and it started getting a little bit mushy and it was clear I hadn't quite gotten all the way there and I'd try again and had to go through a couple of rounds of that before I had them 100% dialed, but um, yeah, they've been they've been solid since. So I don't think it was like an issue where there's a leak or anything that's causing a problem. It's just that I didn't have a a perfect bleed on them the first try and didn't have the easiest time getting there. But otherwise, very impressed. That full review will be up very soon. I think it'll probably be running on Friday, the day after we run this episode. So stay tuned for that real soon and. Along those lines, uh, I'm in the midst of working on a very big break shootout. So the, the uh, Tech 4 V4 is kind of going to be the first standalone review in a minute out of a bunch of things that are going to be in that big roundup. And um won't say too much more for now, but just stay tuned for that because there's going to be a very, very big break roundup somewhat akin to the single crown fork roundup that we have up on the site that's been up there for a bit um so yeah stay tuned for that soon awesome yeah it seems like there are more good options than ever right now in the break world whereas you know you could make the argument that a couple of years ago it was like well you either have sram slash avid or shimano which one do you want you know for most people in the in the sort of mainstream bike world but now it seems like i'm seeing different brands of, of brakes on everybody's bikes and everyone's kind of everyone's making good brakes these days it seems like so yeah there there are definitely a lot more options now and i think one of the kind of key things is that 
yeah, there are, there are a lot of things that work well, but there are trade-offs in terms of lever feel and ergonomics and kind of the power delivery. And so we're going to be going real deep on how all of those options sort of stack up and help people have this guide to figure out, okay, if I prefer this out of a lever feel, et cetera, et cetera, which one of these is going to work? And that's going to have options from Shimano, SRAM, Hope, Hayes, TRP, and Magura in it. So going to be a lot there. And uh, it's going to be a little bit. It's a lot of a lot of breaks to get through. But uh, hard at work on it. And stay tuned for that before too, too long here. Awesome. Yeah, that seems like it'll be super helpful for a lot of people overwhelmed with all the bike stopping devices there are on the market these days. Yep. So, well, we should probably wrap this up. We have been going at it for a while, but Dylan, great to talk with you as always. Got through a lot here and we'll chat again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me again, David. Hope everything's well out in the PN dub and uh, hope to maybe ride with you in person soon. Yeah. We'll make something happen. Awesome. Talk to you soon, Dylan. See ya. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, if you're enjoying these conversations, then we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Dylan for the conversation and the razzing about my mustache. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye, everybody.